political bullshit. So many people that are planning on voting for Joe Biden this November are doing so just because he's not Trump. And if your absolute priority is to kick Donald Trump out of the White House, regardless of who replaces him, then fair enough. But I feel that if you vote for somebody and they're elected into office, you have to, to some degree, stand behind their actions. So let's assume that Joe Biden wins the election. Congratulations, you voted in not Trump. Well, the day that Joe is inaugurated and he takes office, he's no longer not Trump. He's now the 46th president of the United States, President Joe Biden. So the disaster has been averted, but what does a Joe Biden presidency look like? Well, he first joined the Senate in 1973 at the age of 30. If he wins this election, he would be 78 years old and have 48 years of experience in public office when he becomes president. The best way to see what a Joe Biden presidency would look like is to look back at his nearly 50 years in office and see what kind of positions and stances he took throughout the decades. He can claim to have changed his mind. He did that with a few different issues last summer when he announced his campaign. But I think the actions that he took and the stances that he held from 1973 to 2019 holds more weight than any of these new positions that he's claiming to hold for less than a year. I mean, he's 78 years old. He's been in office for well over half his life, nearly half a century. The man knows what he wants. He knows what he stands for. He knows what he believes. And it's not at all uncommon for politicians to make promises like that during a campaign in order to increase their electability. And then they fail to follow through with them when elected. So I think if you really want to see what a Joe Biden presidency might look like, you have to look back at his long proven track record. So let's start with social issues, abortion. He voted to overturn Roe v. Wade twice, once in 1981, a year later in 1982. In 2006, he said he does not view abortion as a choice and a right. His entire government career, both in Congress and as vice president, he has supported the Hyde Amendment. The Hyde Amendment is an amendment that prohibits the use of federal funds for abortions unless the abortion is necessary to save the woman's life or as a result of incest or rape. So this disproportionately affects poor women, young women, women of color, immigrants, those on Medicare, Medicaid. It's a major issue because 42% of all abortions are women that fall below the poverty line. And since this amendment has passed, there have been over 1 million women that have had to carry unwanted pregnancies to term. And he didn't just support this amendment, but in 1981, he took it one step further and he voted to even end federal funding for abortions for women who became pregnant as a result of incest or rape as well, something that was protected under the Hyde Amendment. So going further on women's rights, he passed the Violence Against Women Act. That was a big positive, one of his legacy pieces. Um, I think it was in 1991, he was the Senate Judiciary Chairman, and he oversaw the hearings on Anita Hill and Judge Clarence Thomas. So Judge Thomas was appointed by President George Bush Sr., uh, and sexual allegations were then brought up by Anita Hill, and there was a hearing led by Joe Biden. And the trial was incredibly unfair toward Anita Hill. She wasn't treated well at all. Biden essentially rigged the hearing against her. He even apologized to her over the phone when he entered the race last summer, but Anita said that the apology was unsatisfactory and insincere. And then Joe had uh, made a public statement apologizing. He said, I'm sorry she was treated the way she was treated. I wish we could have figured out a better way to get things done. I did everything in my power to do what I thought was within the rules to try to stop things. Well, I'll tell you some of the things that happened, and you can be the judge of whether or not you think he did everything he could to ensure a fair trial. While he oversaw the hearing, he helped prevent three women 
that were willing to testify about similar experiences that they had with Judge Thomas. Three witnesses didn't allow them to take the stand. Uh, he allowed Judge Thomas to testify both before and after Anita Hill testified. He allowed the all-male Senate Judiciary Committee to just grill her in the most absolutely ridiculous ways. One senator, Senator Orrin Hatch, insisted that one of her claims was ripped off of The Exorcist. He even brought a copy of the book and read a page from it to prove his point. Ever read this book? No. The Exorcist? No, Senator. Ever see the movie? I've seen only the scene with the bed flapping. You said you never did say this. Who has put pubic hair on my coke? You never did talk to her about long dong silver. I submit those things were found. On page 70 of this particular version of The Exorcist, oh, Burks, sighed, Saren, or sighed Sharon. In a guarded tone, she described an encounter between the senator and the director. Dennings had remarked to him in passing, said Sharon, that there appeared to be, quote, an alien pubic hair floating around in my gin, unquote. And she would have us believe that you were saying these things because you wanted to date her? At one point, Joe asked, what was the most embarrassing incident? Tell the committee what was the most embarrassing of all the incidences that you have alleged. And she answered, when he talked about pornography showing, showing large-breasted women having sex with people and animals. Another senator, Arlen Specter, said, breast? That's an ordinary word. That's not too bad. Testified this morning that the most embarrassing question involved, this is not too bad, women's large breasts. That's a word we use all the time. And Anita Hill had to elaborate. It wasn't the word breast that offended her. It was the rest of it. <laughs> if you hear the sentence when he talked about porn showing large-breasted women having sex with people and animals, and the thing that seems most unusual to you is large-breasted and not having sex with animals, something's wrong with you. <laughs> Reliable is your testimony in... October of 1991 on events that occurred eight, 10 years ago. How sure can you expect this committee to be on the accuracy of your statements? I guess one really does have to understand something about the nature of sexual harassment. Uh, it is very difficult for people to come forward with these things. I've got to determine what your motivation might be. Are you a scorned woman? Do you have a militant attitude relative to the area of civil rights? Do you have a martyr complex? The issue of fantasy has arisen. Are you interested in writing a book? Do you have anything to gain by coming here? Has anybody promised you anything by coming forth with this story now? On page three, it was my opinion at the time, and is now my opinion, that Ms. Hill's fantasies about sexual interest in her were an indication of the fact that she was having a problem being rejected by men she was attracted to. I think we, we differ on our interpretation of what I said. Well, what am I, what, what am I missing here, Professor Hill? The witness speak in her own words rather than having words put in her mouth? Uh, uh, Mr. Chairman, I object to that. 
I object to that vociferously. I'm asking questions here. If Senator Kennedy has anything to say, let him participate in this hearing. Now, let, let, let it... In the end, Judge Clarence Thomas ended up being confirmed with a two-vote majority, and he's still a sitting Supreme Court judge today near, nearly 30 years later. All right, so to move on to LGBTQ issues. In 1993, he voted in favor of the Don't Ask, Don't Tell law, which prohibited those that are openly gay from serving in the military. In 1996, he voted for the Defense of Marriage Act, which defined marriage federally as the union of one man and one woman. It also allowed states to refuse to recognize same-sex marriage, but eventually it was overturned in 2013 when it was ruled unconstitutional. Drugs. He was called a drug warrior for being a leader on the war on drugs. He sponsored and he co-wrote the Anti-Drug Abuse Act in the middle of the crack epidemic in 1986. It may seem like a positive thing, but it very much was not. The bill mandated a minimum of five years in prison for five grams of crack and five years of prison for 500 grams of cocaine. Blacks and minorities were much more likely to be caught with crack than cocaine. The disparity of the sentence being literally 100 times worse than the cocaine sentence was just discriminatory towards blacks and minorities. It led to blacks and minorities being imprisoned at extremely high rates and with extremely long sentences. And it stayed that way for 24 years until the Fair Sentencing Act in 2010, which reduced the disparity from 100 to 1 to 18 to 1. In 1983, he played a major role in the passing of the Comprehensive Forfeiture Act. This, with this, he pushed to allow judges to hold more defendants without bail. So he wanted those that are innocent being held, innocent until proven guilty, he wanted them to be held in jail with no bail. He's against the federal legalization of marijuana. From 1974 to the present day, he's consistently been against federal legalization. As recently as 2010, he said, I still believe it's a gateway drug. I've spent a lot of my life as a chairman of the Judiciary Committee dealing with this. I think it would be a mistake to legalize. When he was asked about it in 2014, he said, our policy for our administration is still not legalization. In February of this year, 2020, his campaign stated his position has not changed and he still would not support lifting the federal ban on marijuana. In 1994, he wrote the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act. There's a few noteworthy things about this bill. It creates a financial incentive for keeping people in jail for longer periods of time, which ended up disproportionately affecting minorities. A consistent theme going here. Um, this also expanded the number of laws that would be eligible for the death penalty, including non-homicidal narcotic offenses. Between 1973 and now, Biden's entire career in office, there have been 160 people, more than 160 people that were sentenced to death and then later exonerated. Those are just the ones they caught in time before they followed through with the death sentence. You have to wonder how many death sentences have been carried out on innocent people. Now to the economic issues. A big one, he voted in favor of the Iraq War and the Patriot Act. I don't really feel the need to elaborate on that too strongly. Um, trade. He voted for the North American Free Trade Agreement, otherwise known as NAFTA, as well as the Australian, U.S., and Morocco, U.S. Free Trade Agreements, favor of permanent normal trade relations with China in 2000, supporter of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It was deals like these that resulted in millions of jobs being sent overseas and causing a depression of American wages. Because instead of these companies basing out of America, creating well-paying jobs for Americans, paying taxes, boosting the economy, 
with these disastrous trade agreements, we saw these companies exploiting our overzealous love for capitalism. Even Trump called NAFTA the single worst trade deal ever approved in the United States, and he's right. Healthcare. It's no secret that he's not a supporter of a single-payer healthcare system at all. Instead, he's opting for creating a public option with the aim of getting 97% of Americans covered. That seems like a high percentage, but that still leaves over 10 million Americans without health coverage. That's 10 million Americans that would be covered under Medicare for All with no health care. And his public option would, in his words, give everybody an affordable option. So what's an affordable option for Joe Biden? I feel like that's an important question to ask because my definition of affordable will likely differ from, say, a millionaire's definition of affordable. According to his healthcare proposal, no one would be required to pay more than 8.5% of their income toward health insurance premiums. So if you make $60,000 a year, that's right around the median household income in the U.S., at 8.5%, your premium would be $425 a month. That's his affordable option. $425 per month. That's not affordable. That's $100 a week. Uh, welfare. He's consistently advocated throughout his entire career for cuts to Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and veterans benefits. And this shouldn't be a gotcha or, it's, or anything like that. It's not a secret at all. You can watch videos of him talking about it online, passionately calling for cuts on the floor to these programs. I introduced the budget freeze years ago. The liberals of my party said, it's an awful thing you're doing, Joe. You are all the programs we care about. You're freezing them. Money for the blind, the disabled, education, and so on. And my argument then is one I make now, which is the strongest, most compelling reason to be for this, but this amendment or an amendment. And that is that if we don't do that, all the things I care most about are going to be gone. I mean, whatever happened to that old conservative discipline about paying for what you spend. I'm up for re-election this year and I'm going to remind everybody what I did at home, which is going to cost me politically. I, when I argued that we should freeze federal spending, I meant Social Security as well. I meant Medicare and Medicaid. I meant veterans benefits. I meant every single solitary thing in the government. And I not only tried it once, I tried it twice, I tried it a third time, and I tried it a fourth time. Yet despite the fact that there's clear evidence of this online, he just blatantly lied to the American people during the last Democratic debate when Bernie directly asked him about it. On the floor of the Senate, you were in the Senate for a few years, Yeah. time and time again, talking about the necessity, with pride, about cutting Social Security, cutting Medicare, cutting veterans programs. No. You never said that. No. All right. Come on, look, Joe, you won't. Look, here's the You're deal. You're an honest guy. Why don't you just tell the truth here? We all make I, mistakes. I, I am telling the truth. You were prepared to cut and advocated for the cuts let, of let, programs. Let's just let me, say, I did not. I never voted to cut social Not talking about voting, Joe. That's not I what I said. I never voted. But look, I voted to protect it. All right. One more time. Were you on the floor time and time again, for whatever reason, talking about the need to cut social security and Medicare and veterans programs. No, I did not talk about the need to cut any of those programs. Okay, all that I would say to the American people, go to YouTube, it's all over the place. Joe said it many, many times. When I argued that we should freeze federal spending, I meant Social Security as well. I meant Medicare and Medicaid. I meant veterans benefits. I meant every single solitary thing in the government. And I not only tried it once, I tried it twice, I tried it a third time, and I tried it a fourth time. And not only 
news programs not call him out on that after the debate, but they literally were saying things like, well, that was his time in Congress. Why should that matter now? Why should that matter now? Well, there's two reasons. It shows where his stance is on these programs. And if you didn't know, the president actually has a bit of an influence over the budget. And number two, he lied. Whether or not you agree with the cuts is one thing, but he blatantly lied to the American people. He had to drop out of his first presidential run in the 80s for lying, and now he's lying again. That's not okay. Moving on, bankruptcy. In the late 90s and the early 2000s, he had supported the bankruptcy bill. This bill was a response to an unusually large surge of bankruptcy filings at the time. But instead of focusing on why there was an increase in bankruptcy filings and solving those problems, the bill reformed the legislation to just make it harder to file for bankruptcy. This is when Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren first started quarreling. Warren was pushing for solutions to the actual problems that were putting people in crippling debt like outrageous medical bills, while Joe was just trying to make it harder to file so people would end up in crippling debt with no way out. While the bill was still being negotiated even, Joe played an active role in defeating proposed amendments to the bill that would have actually protected members of the military and those who were filing due to medical debt. Elizabeth Warren called Joe's approach like cutting down on hospital admissions during an epidemic by locking the door. In the end, Bill Clinton vetoed the bill, but a few years later it came up again. Joe pushed it again. Elizabeth Warren fought against it again, but it was during the Bush administration and it ultimately ended up passing. Ten years later, they did a study and they found that the bill did not cut down on bankruptcy fraud at all, which was Joe's purpose, or it did very little, but instead it just, basically what it did was it just made it harder for people to file for bankruptcy when they needed it. That's exactly what Elizabeth Warren was afraid of. So the Democratic nominee has been against abortion, gays serving openly in the military, legalizing marijuana, actual affordable health care. His plan leaves over 10 million Americans uninsured and doesn't provide an actual affordable option. He supported criminal punishment reform that was much harsher on crimes, more likely to be committed by minorities. He supported disastrous trade deals that cost millions of jobs. The Iraq War, the Patriot Act, the Bailout Bill, Defense of Marriage Act, which states that marriage is just between a man and a woman and that's it. He supports cuts to Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, veteran benefits. He essentially bullied Anita Hill during her sexual allegation hearing against Judge Thomas, who is still serving on the Supreme Court today. Doesn't sound like somebody I want to run my country. Is he better than Trump? In many ways, yes. Most ways, yes. In some ways, no. You could say Trump is better. But overall, Biden is better than Trump. That doesn't mean that I support the Democratic Party moving in that direction. I think people are underestimating how bad Joe Biden is and overestimating how bad Trump is. Yes, he's terrible. But can we survive four more years of Trump if it comes down to it? Yes, we can. That doesn't mean that I want him to be our president. It just means I'm not willing to sacrifice my values to devote my vote solely to kicking him out at any cost, at the cost of voting in a neoliberal corporatist who has voted in the wrong direction on a huge number of issues, and that's going to be the new representation of the party that's supposed to represent me? No. As I stand today, I disagree both ways, so I will not support something I disagree with. I'm not going to be voting either of those two ways. There's still plenty of time between now and November, but that's as it stands today. If that's a president you want to see, then by all means, vote for him. I won't shame you at all. If you want to vote for Trump, vote for Trump. If you actually believe in his policy and his positions. But when you see it laid out like that, I bet you a vast majority of Joe Biden supporters would not want to see that as their president. 
political bullshit.